You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. Continuing to study through the book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we're in that practical section of Ephesians where we're learning how to apply the principles that we read about and learned about in chapters 1 through 3. You remember in those chapters, we learned about all of our blessings in Christ. All of the things that He has done for us. The wealth that we have as believers. And now we're instructed, now we're encouraged to begin to walk those things out, to apply them in our life. And Paul has taught us how to apply these spiritual blessings in a number of ways. He's taught us to apply them in the church, how to apply them in relationships, in our service, that is in using our gifts, in our conduct. And now Paul turns his attention to marriage. That oft-practiced, but so misunderstood agreement that men and women have been making since the very beginning of creation. As people who are followers of Jesus Christ, that's what it means to be a Christian. We're a follower of Jesus Christ. We understand all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We recognize who we are in Christ and also who He is in us. That's the very theme of Ephesians. Who we are in Christ and who He is in us. And in light of that, as we understand that and as we read in Ephesians and we see all of our blessings and we see who we are in Christ, guess what? Transformation takes place, should take place, and we become different than the culture in which we live. And that is supposed to be true, not only in our lives, but I think even more importantly in our marriages. That our marriages, that Christian marriages should look different than the marriages in the world. There's probably no greater way that we fulfill our mission as believers here in Prineville and Crook County than by modeling the biblical mandate for marriage. Before we launch in and and jump into our text this morning, I want to talk a little bit about what is marriage biblically. According to the Scriptures, marriage is, first of all, a covenant. It's an agreement between one man and one woman who make sacred vows to one another. You remember those vows that you made? That wasn't like something just to get it over with so that you could go have cake or go to Hawaii. Those were vows that you made to your spouse in front of God primarily. You made them in front of God. And He takes them seriously. And even though you've forgotten what you said, He hasn't. He knows the vows that you made. We also make them in front of people who are supposed to hold us accountable to those vows. And then, after we make those vows to one another, and we commit ourselves to one another, then and only then are we supposed to come together in that sacred union of marriage, the first act of marriage, where we become one, we consummate the marriage in the sexual union, whereby the man and the woman who were separate individuals now become one. Now, There are some biblical grounds for divorce, mainly sexual infidelity, adultery, and if the unbelieving spouse, if you're married unequally where there's a believer and an unbeliever, and the unbeliever decides to leave, 1 Corinthians 7 tells us, go ahead and allow them to leave. Those are the biblical grounds for divorce. And while there are some... Jesus said because of the hardness of our heart, Moses allowed that. He wrote that, a certificate of divorce. While there are some biblical grounds for divorce, the fact that 50% plus marriages end in divorce is an indication that we are in a marriage crisis. Not to mention that those statistics are identical amongst professing Christians as they are amongst those who make no such claims. We are in the church in the midst of a marriage crisis. And as as we study our text this morning, I want us to notice four things. We're going to see the role of the wife. We're going to see the role of the husband. We're going to see those roles symbolized. And then we're going to see those roles summed up. 
If you remember when you fell in love with your spouse, you focused upon all of the things that you had in common. Remember those times where, where everything was about what you had in common? It was like eHarmony.com. You know, everything, oh, we, I mean, we just measured up on so many levels of compatibility. It was amazing. And you focused on those things. Focused upon all the things that made you compatible and that you loved about that person so much. But then after marriage, soon after marriage, you begin to realize that there are some vast differences between you and him, between you and her. And soon, after that sort of initial infatuation phase, maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years, you begin to sort of realize that this person wasn't all that they are cracked up to be. And there are some things that really irritate you and bug you and rub you the wrong way. And unfortunately, we do not realize that God has designed us to be essentially incompatible. You might say that we are incompatible by design. That's how God created us. It's very clear. It does not take any kind of a genius to figure out that men and women are different. Now, we were taught the opposite of that for many, many years, that men and women are they are the same. Look, we got to understand something. Equality and sameness are different. Men and women are equal. But when men and women are not the same, how sad would it have been if God created Eve to be a clone of Adam? I think he would have looked at whoever that thing was once he came out of his sleep and been like, what is this? That's not what I want. That's not what I need, right? But he looked at her and he was totally blown away because it's exactly what he needed, see? And so God has not created us the same, but He has created us equal. And so we are different by design. In fact, studies and research has shown that the differences between girls and boys is perceptible six weeks after conception. That's how close that they're able to begin to recognize vast differences in the way that those babies respond to to noise and to sounds into their mother's voice into all sorts of things they respond differently and it just carries over from there we're different and different by design and so let's talk about as we launch into Ephesians chapter 5 let's talk about first of all the role of the wife verses 22 to 24 wives Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so, here we find the role of the wife. First thing we see is her responsibility. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now that word submit there, it's a word that first of all, creates a lot of emotions within women. But what what does it mean? The word submit, it means to place under, to place under their leadership, to place under the leadership of your husband. Now I think it begs asking why. Why are women to be placed under the leadership of their husbands. I think we see a few reasons for that here in our text. First of all, it's part of her obedience to Jesus. It says here that wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This does not mean that wives submit to their husbands in the same way they submit to the Lord. In some weird, worshipful way, as some men would think that that's the way their wives need to respond to them in some sort of homage. That's not what it means here at all. What it means is that the wife is submitting to her husband not because of who he is, not because he's worthy of it, but because she's doing that out of her obedience to Jesus. In submitting to Him, she's in a sense submitting to the Lord. And so the wife 
who is not submissive, a wife who is not placing herself under the role of the leadership of her husband, is not only a lousy wife, but she's also in rebellion to God. You see, it's a lot more than just your relationship with your husband at stake here. Your submission to your husband, your placing yourself under his leadership, is your responsibility to God. And so a woman who says, I love Jesus, and yet is not placing herself under the leadership of her husband, is actually speaking out of both sides of her mouth. See? And we'll get into the role of the the husband. Don't worry, ladies. Don't worry at all. But I think it's, it's needful to understand that a woman who is not submissive to her husband, who is not placing herself under the leadership of her husband, is not only a lousy wife, and I don't think there's anything wrong saying that. That's what it is. There's lousy wives, there's lousy husbands. And so you're not only a lousy wife, but you're also in rebellion to God. So you need to think about that. A second reason for a wife's submission to her husband is because it's appropriate, listen, it's appropriate due to the model of the relationship between Jesus and the church. As we see in verse 32, it's a great mystery. But the marriage is modeled by Jesus in the church. The relationship between Jesus the groom and the church the bride. Jesus is the head of the church. I don't think there's any argument about that. Even a cursory reading of the book of Colossians will tell us that. Jesus is the head of the church. And so, as Christ is head of the church, so the husband is head of the family and head of the wife, as it says here. And as the the church submits to Jesus, so the wife submits to her husband. Therefore, the model is only held up if the wife understands her role as bride and therefore that she's under the headship of her groom. Otherwise, we absolutely destroy the model. Another reason, a third reason, final reason for a woman to submit to her husband is it's appropriate in the order of creation. Now, we're believers here in Jesus, I'm sure most of us. We believe that God created the world. We believe that God created man and woman, right? That means he knows what he's doing. Just like the the creator of that vacuum that you bought or that car that you bought or whatever thing that you buy these days, it has to be assembled, right? Some assembly required and then it says no tools needed. Yeah, right. And you bring it home and it's like this huge project. And you begin to try to put it together without looking at the directions. And then sooner or later... You pull out the owner's manual because the person that assembled all of those parts knows more than you do about it. And so you consult their opinion. Well, here's the word of God. He is our maker. And he said, look, this is the way I've set it up. I've created man to be the leader. You see, this wasn't our idea as men. This is the way God created us to be leaders. I created woman to be the helper. Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to talk about that Eve was created out of Adam to come alongside and to augment him, to fulfill him, to be that which he couldn't be. And so it's appropriate in the order of creation. It's how God set it up from the beginning. And you know what? When you try to use something that is not the way it was created, to be used, it just doesn't work. Have you ever tried to use something other than a hammer to hammer things? I have, you know, like crescent wrenches or screwdrivers, whatever you've got in your hand, right? And you're just whacking on this thing, and it doesn't really work. And the same is true when we try to reverse the model. Listen, all the psychologists and all of the experts can say whatever they want about how marriage should look. But our maker, our creator, has told us. He says, women, this is how I've made you. This is how you will flourish. Do we want to flourish or do we want to fail? It's a question. Do we want to be like a crescent wrench trying to strike a nail or do we want to be a hammer striking a nail? It's appropriate to the order of creation. And so what does it mean? 
the husband is the head, as it says here in verse 23. That, that, that could be a very ambiguous and, and, and hard to define kind of a statement. It's one that men, I think, use in abuse. What does it mean the husband is the head? Well, first of all, I think we need to understand something that anything without a head is dead. And anything with two heads is a monster. Anything without a head is dead, right? Anything with two heads is a monster. It's a mutant. So when the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife, it's not stating that a man should be the head. Now listen, listen very carefully. It's not stating that a man should be the head, but rather that he simply is the head. Do you understand the distinction? It's not stating that maybe someday he'll have the ability or that he'll rise to his potential and be the head. No, he is the head of the family, of the wife. So the only question remains, is he good at it or not? That's the only question that remains. Not whether you are a leader, not whether you are the head, but whether you're any good at it, men. And so if your wife is struggling to be led by you, you look, you need to look no further than yourself because you are not being the head that you're called to be. And so, men, we are leaders. We are the head of the family. That is without question. It's not like that you evaluate, well, you know, she's actually more qualified and better at it, so we'll go ahead and let her do it. No, you are the head. You are the leader of the family. And if you're not leading your family, somebody else will. And if you're not leading your family, you're abdicating that role to your wife or to your children or to somebody else. What does it mean to be a good head or to be a good leader? Well, I think simply put, it basically means that you'll be a lot like Jesus. Ladies, as you read this and you see, man, the husband is the head of the wife. That's heavy. What does that mean? Does that mean that he's like this heavy-handed, brutal dictator? No, it means that he'll be like Jesus because Jesus is the head of the church. That's the model. So men, you're called to be a leader. You're called to be the head of your family and it ought to look like Jesus. Here's a few things. Husband, who is the head, will lead his family toward Jesus in the will of God. A husband who is a head will take his responsibility for things that happen in the family that are not his fault. doesn't happen very often, does it? Most of the time, men, we try to blame shift. Well, it was, it was her fault, or, or it was the kid's fault, or it was the dog's fault. No, it's my fault. I'm the leader. If this family fails, I look to myself. Just like in a business and in a church, you need to look no further than the leader of that organization when it fails. He will stoop down, a leader will stoop down to serve his family rather than lord over them in arrogance. That's what Jesus did. Remember John chapter 13? Jesus girded himself with a towel. He stooped down and he washed his disciples' feet, something that the other disciples were unwilling to do because it was the job of the lowest servant. And Jesus said, I'll do it. And he got down and he washed their feet and he served them. And that's what a leader does. Jesus said that he came to serve, not to be served. A good leader, a good head of a family will be loving, patient, and kind to his wife. A good leader will see his wife as his equal in every way as an image bearer of God. A good leader, a good head will not be a chauvinist on the one hand or a coward on the other. He will accept the fact that he is the leader in the marriage. I think there's some men here this morning that need to accept the fact that you are the head of the family, that you are the leader, and that if you aren't being the leader, well, you did. You just chose to give it to somebody else. That was your first and last decision as a leader. You chose to go ahead and let somebody else do it, but you were the one that chose. See, you gave it up. He will seek to be one with his wife rather than two individuals. That's what a good head and a good leader does. I think there's some lessons about headship from the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. First, we might call it identity. First lesson that we learn from God the Father and God the Son. 
is identity. Because you remember that Jesus said on one occasion, I and my Father are one, John 10.30. And the Scriptures tell us that when a man and a woman are married, they are one flesh. And so there is a oneness that takes place. But in the headship, it means that one is the leader and the other isn't. Just like in the relationship of God the Father and God the Son, they were one. They were equal. But you remember that Jesus took the place of submission to the Father while He was on the earth. And so ladies, in that sense, you are modeling Jesus as you submit to your husband because Jesus submitted to the Father. They were one. They were equal. It wasn't a matter of, well, who's more omnipotent? Well, who's more sovereign? Who's who's more powerful? And see, that's what happens in a marriage, right? Well, I'm more qualified. I'm smarter. I, I, I should be leading this thing. Jesus submitted Himself to the will of the Father. That is a, a key lesson in headship for you ladies. There's also cooperation. The Lord Jesus on one occasion said, My Father worked and I work. We cooperate together as husbands and wives. Jesus was working, the Father was working, and they were working toward the same goal. They were on a mission. We talk about submission, right? Basically, that word can be broken down into placing yourself under the mission of the family. Sub, it means under. The mission. What's the mission? The mission is to reach people for Jesus Christ, right? The mission is to be the light of the world. And guess what, ladies? As you submit yourself to your husband, you are submitting yourself to the mission that God has given you. You are being the light of the world. You are being a testimony to the lost. You're submitting yourself to the mission of God, just as Jesus did. They cooperated. It was mutual, but Jesus understood His position. Husbands and wives are supposed to cooperate. There's equality, but there is a head. It's identity, it's cooperation. There's also honor. There are passages where the Lord Jesus says of His Father, I always honor My Father. John 8.49 And then in that same chapter, a few verses later, He said, it is the Father who honors Me. There's a mutual sharing of honor between the Father and the Son. And there's a mutual sharing of honor between the husband and the wife. That's what headship means. It means the husband honors his wife. It means the wife honors her husband because they're fulfilling their God-given roles. Identity, cooperation, honor, it also speaks of authority. Jesus said in John 14, My Father is greater than I. Is that really true? Is God the Father greater than God the Son in a sense of talent or ability or giftedness? Absolutely not. They're the same. What Jesus was saying is, my Father is greater than I because I place myself under His leadership, His guidance, His will. Jesus said, I always do those things that please Him. And so ladies, again, you're modeling Jesus. Remember when Jesus was sweating great drops of blood as he was there in the garden. And what was he saying? He was having a conversation with God the Father and he was saying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Wives, you have an opinion, you have counsel, you have a perspective that needs to be shared and needs to be given and needs to be listened to. But then you leave it at that and you say, but not my will be, but your will be done. I'm placing myself under your authority. So I'm leaving it at that. Here it is. This is what I think, but we'll leave it there. And in that way, you're being like Jesus. And again, I don't think that's so bad. If Jesus can do it, then ladies, you can do it. He modeled it for you. See, He's not asking you to do anything that He didn't already do. And so some lessons about headship. Now before we move on to the role of husbands, I want us to take note of a few things here under the role of the wife. First, it says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. A wife is to submit only to her husband. 
which frees her from being ordered around by chauvinistic pigs who think every woman is their slave. This is the order of the family. This has nothing to do with society. This has nothing to do with a, a woman who might own a company and might have men under her. This has nothing to do with the fact that if a woman is in politics, it's nothing to do with that. This is the order of the family, the family unit. And God has said the man is to be the head of the home. And so guess what? A woman might be a senator, and she might rule hundreds and thousands of people, but when she gets home, if she's to have a biblical model of marriage, she would place herself under the submission of her husband, even though she's his senator. Think you follow me. In, in the model of the home is what is being talked about here. A wife is to submit to her own husband, not to every wacko guy that thinks women are to be under his authority. No, it's her husband, which frees a woman, if she's not married, from being under the thumb of the men in society. And so, ladies, as you look for a husband, guess what your number one priority should be? Can I submit to him? Can I respect him? Not is he good looking, not is he talented, not does he make a lot of money, but can I submit to him? And if you can't find a man that you can submit to, then don't get married. Second thing to take note of here is that her submission to his leadership is in everything. Verse 24, in everything. Now that kind of is pretty inclusive, I think. In everything. Which extends to all areas of their marriage, but does not mean, and I've said this, but I'll say it again, does not mean that she's without opinion or input, but that once her opinion is given, she quits talking and begins praying that her blockhead of a husband will make the right decision. (laughs) In everything means that she doesn't simply submit to him when she agrees with his decision or when he accepts her advice. That's not called submission. That's called getting your way. It's a big difference. Does God really mean everything here? Well, I think we need to understand everything here in this idea of submission the same way we do in other spheres of submission. Romans chapter 13 tells us that Christians are to submit to the ruling authorities in the government, right? Except we know that we aren't to submit to the government when the government is asking us to disobey God. And so the same would be true in the family, in the husband and wife relationship. Wives, if your husbands are asking you to do something that is sinful and wrong, then you don't have to submit to him in that way. If he's asking you to sign a fraudulent tax return, you don't have to sign it. In this crazy world in which we live, there are husbands that will ask their wives to prostitute themselves to make money. Women do not have to submit to that. Women do not have to submit to not only those things that are black and white in the Scriptures, but they don't have to submit to their husbands in things that are sin to them. The Bible says, To him who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so if your husband is asking you to do something that you believe is sinful and wrong and affects your conscience, you don't have to do that. Now don't start creating things and calling them sin. You know what I'm talking about. Talking about those areas that may be okay for some but not for others. And a husband should never ask his wife to do those things that she believes are sinful. A husband who is physically abusive does not need to be submitted to. A wife does not need to submit to a physically abusive husband who endangers the safety of the wife or children. She's free from her obligation to submit. A wife does not have to submit to a husband who breaks the bond of marriage through adultery. Obviously, a wife does not have to submit to his adultery and just accept it. The Bible gives her the right to come out from under his authority because he's broken the marriage bond. Now, she doesn't have to, but the Bible does give her that opportunity. And so those are some exceptions to the phrase, in everything. Now, as we move into the role of the husband, we see, number one, that there's more verses, there's more responsibility, there's more that God 
holds a man to because he's called him to be a leader, and leaders are always more responsible. Let's read verses 25 to 29. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. As husbands, we are called to love our wives. And this word love here is agape. It's an unconditional, unending, unmerited, Jesus-like love. Now this idea of love might be up for interpretation if it wasn't described for us in the following verses. If it just said, husbands, love your wives. We thought, well, you know, I'll love her the way I love her. You know, it's kind of my own little style I got going on here. No, we are told exactly how to love our wives. Paul gives us three ways in which we are, as men, commanded to love our wives. Now, as I studied and read through this this week, there were a few times where I contemplated packing up and just like, you know, driving away for a few days so that I didn't have to teach this. Because you know what? This is a lot, is a long way from me, from who I am. I don't live up to these things. I don't stand up here and teach you these things because I have them figured out. I stand up here teaching you them because I need to apply them. And as the words are going out, they're coming right back to me. I'm no model of a husband. And I need to apply these things just as much as every one of you. And Paul gives us three ways in which we're to love our wives. First of all, sacrificial love, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Sacrificial love. He must love his wife as Jesus loved the church. Jesus, you guys, didn't come to be served. He didn't have a glass with a little ice in the bottom and and shaking it. You know, where's my remote and my slippers? No, Jesus came to serve, to give his life, to give his life a ransom for many. Husbands may say, well, you know, I like the first part there about the submission thing. I mean, that's kind of cool. I thought God said I was supposed to be the head of the home. This doesn't sound like much of a headship, you know, dying and giving yourself up and all that. I mean, that doesn't sound like much of a leader. Sounds like a wimp. I thought I was supposed to be the head. My wife was supposed to submit to me. If she's supposed to submit, then why do I have to lay down my life and sacrifice? Why do I have to humble myself and and give away my high-minded reputation and be a servant? I thought I was in charge. There's only one answer to those questions. Our understanding of headship, submission, and leadership is all screwed up. It's worldly. It's fleshly. We need to understand it in a godly way, in a Christ-like way, because Jesus came to serve, to give his life. Worldly headship says, I'm your head, so take your orders from me and, and do whatever I want. Godly headship says, I'm your head, so I must take care of you and serve you. Worldly submission says, you must submit to me. So here's some things I want you to do for me. Godly submission says, you must submit to me. So I'm accountable before God for you. I must care for you and serve you because I'm responsible for you. It's a big difference. It's sacrificial love. Men, when was the last time you laid down your life for your family, and for your wives? was the last time you stooped down and washed their feet and served them and blessed them? It's not only a sacrificial love, it's a sanctifying love. Verses 26 and 27. That He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word. That He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus did For his bride. And this is what Jesus is asking us as men to do for our brides. It's a sanctifying love. The word sanctify. That he might sanctify her. It means to set apart. Do our wives feel set apart and special? 
Or do they feel like just another person in the crowd? Just another person in our lives? What's being spoken of here is that he must encourage his wife's spiritual growth. That's what's being spoken of. Continually bringing her to Jesus so that she might be washed and cleansed. It means praying together. It means spending time in the Word together. It means helping her to mature. It means that when you see your wife struggling in her walk with the Lord, it's your fault. When your family is failing spiritually, it's your fault, men, because you have failed in that area. Sanctifying love. Third kind of love, and it's a word I don't use often, but I think it does describe what is being written of here, is self-love. Verses 28 and 29. He must love his wife as himself. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And so it's self-love. And the single word as here, as he says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. That word as is very important. Paul does not say, so ought men to love their wives in the same way as they love their bodies. That would be an improvement in many cases. But that's not the meaning. What he says is, men ought to love their wives because they are, they are their own bodies. Because it's loving yourself when you love your wife. Because you're one. And so when you mistreat your wife, you're mistreating yourself. When you talk down to your wife, you're talking down to yourself. When you neglect your wife, you're neglecting yourself. So on, so on, and so on. And that's why men who are not being the head and the leaders of their families are so screwed up. Because they're screwing themselves up. It's pretty basic. God set it up that way. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. It's not good for man to be alone. You remember, after having repeated seven times in Genesis chapter 1 that everything he created was good. God is like, man, that's good. Wow, that's cool. That is great. And then he got to Adam and he he said, you know what? It's not good that he's alone. Was it like all of a sudden God had this epiphany? He's like, man, I should have given him a partner. No, it was there for emphasis to show us how bad it is for man to be alone. That it would stick out to us. Because as Adam is there and he's been given dominion over all the animals, and he's naming them, he's like, yeah, there's some cool hippos. And they've got a hippo husband and a hippo wife. And as he's doing that, and he's naming all of these animals, and he's seeing all of them have a partner, he thinks to himself, where's my partner? And God said, look, it's not good for you to be alone. I want to make a helper. Comparable to you. Not the same as you. Not a clone of you. So I'm going to put you to sleep. I'm going to pull a rib out of your side. I'm going to fashion this amazing, wonderful woman named Eve for you. And you're one. She's taken from you. And I think we hear that word helper. I'm going to make a helper comparable. I think women are sort of offended at that word. Helper. I don't want to be a helper. I'm educated. I'm smart. I'm talented. Helper, come on. That sounds like the low job. That's like the guy with the shovel. He's the helper. Well, the word helper in the Hebrew, in Genesis 2.18, holds the idea of one helping that she possesses assets and or abilities that the one needing help does not have. That the one who is the helper has skills and talents and abilities and assets that the one needing help does not have. See? And so it's not like you get to kind of be like a little slave, a little tag along, tell you what to do. No, you have gifts and talents and abilities that your husband doesn't have. It's also the word most frequently used in the Old Testament to describe the help or comfort that we receive from the Lord. You remember the Holy Spirit is called our helper. So I don't think that's such a bad gig, ladies. You're being compared to the Holy Spirit. Husbands are called to a much higher standard. As we read these words, the role of the husband to love his wife, to to cherish her, to nourish her, to set her apart, to provide for her, we see it's a much higher calling, a much higher standard. 
than what is given to the wife. They are called to be Jesus. We are called to be Jesus to our families, you guys. Yes, we're leaders. Yes, we should be making the final decisions. But to do so, we better make sure that we're hearing from God. We better make sure that we're hearing from the Lord. Not our pride, not our self-will, nothing else. That we're making decisions that are not selfish, but selfless. Putting our family's needs ahead of our own. That's what it means to be a husband. It means that we consult the ideas, the opinions, and the counsel of our wife. And only idiots and fools don't do so. Only idiot men think that they can do it all on their own. Only foolish men think that their wives are just there to serve them dinner and to give them sex. Only foolish men, only idiots think that way. Godly leaders, godly heads, godly men and husbands see their wives as a compliment to them, as augmenting them, as making them better. The biblical pattern of marriage is perfectly modeled for us in Jesus and in His relationship with the church. Look at verses 30 and 32. For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. A good marriage is modeled for us in Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. We need to look no further than that. And if husbands would treat their wives as Jesus treats the church, which I don't think is half bad. I think Jesus treats us pretty good, right? I think Ephesians is all about how Jesus treats the church. He blesses us. He provides for us. If husbands would treat their wives as Jesus treats the church, and wives would honor and submit to their husbands as the church is supposed to do for Christ, then we would have very successful marriages if we would just look at the biblical model. And Paul goes back to Genesis again and he says, look, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother just as the bride of Christ left the world behind. So the husband is to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, marriage is for men. It's not for boys. Marriage is for real men who want to be leaders, who want to serve, who want to treat their wives like Jesus treats the church. And they're ready to leave their old life behind. They're ready to leave mom and dad behind and not have them pay their bills and not live at their house and not have mom run your family. Men, if your moms are stepping in the way of your marriage relationships, grow up. Quit being a wimp. Quit being a little boy and listening to your mom. Mom's not telling you when to come in and play, when to go out. Mom's not there for you anymore. You are a man. Start acting like a man. Quit being a wimp. It's time to grow up. That's what it means to leave your father and mother. And you know what? Far too many men never leave. Their mom still runs the show. And their mom treats their wife like trash. And they allow it to happen. And if that's true of you, remove that yellow streak off your back and tell your mom what's up. Tell your mom, you're not allowed to come over to my house unless you're going to treat my wife with respect. And until you can do that, just stay away. And we need to do that sometimes. Moms and sons have a close relationship that's healthy and that's good. But listen, guys, you are one with your wife. It supersedes your relationship with anyone else, including your mom, including your dad. Marriage is for men, not for boys. Too many boys are married. They need to grow up. Well, these roles are summed up for us in verse 33. It all just sort of is made very simple for us. We like simple. Marriage is not complicated. It's difficult, but it's not complicated. And people want to go and they want to consult psychologists and psychiatrists and they want to go to seminars and they want to read books. There's more books written about marriage and we have a few up here this morning. Good books. But guess what? 
This is the ingredients for a successful marriage. It's not complicated. It is difficult. But this is what will bring success to your marriage. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The needs of husbands and wives. Just as they are created differently, we need to understand that. Husband and a wife, they're created totally differently. And so when we understand that we're coming at things from two completely different perspectives, then we begin to know what our wife needs. We begin to know what our husband needs. And wow, this amazing thing happens. We start to fulfill each other instead of being at odds with each other. Simply put, a husband needs to be respected. That's what men need. Call it ego, call it pride. It's the way God created us. We need to be respected. And a wife needs to be loved. Devastation comes upon a married woman who is unloved. A married woman who is unloved is the key to a destructive relationship. And she might lash out in a way that that kind of seems like she's really strong and kind of seems like she's got it all together. But really what she's saying is, I'm not being loved. And that's why I lash out in anger. That's why I lash out in gossiping about you. That's why I lash out in putting you down. That's why I'm lashing out in nagging you. Is because I don't feel loved by you. And so a woman who feels unloved, who has no time from her husband, no touch, no provision, no conversation, no service, she will begin to lash out in ways that makes the husband feel not respected. And then it's this vicious cycle that ensues. Equal devastation rests upon a husband whose wife does not respect him, who nags him, who gossips about him, who mocks him, who undermines him, who talks badly about him in front of other people or to other people. Ladies, there's nothing uglier than a wife that speaks badly about her husband. And if that's true of you, you need to repent. It's ugly, it's destructive, and it's harmful. And when we've seen that happen in the ladies' get-togethers, I tell my wife, you put an end to that right there. You don't allow that to go on. If she wants to deal with that with her husband, great. She doesn't bring that down to a group of ladies and begin to attack her husband. It's nasty. But men, you're creating that because you're a lousy leader. And so if you'll begin to love your wife, if you'll begin to be the head of your home, your wife will be like butter in your hands. She wants to submit to you. She wants to respect you. This wisdom is one of the key ingredients, the key insights into the male and female dynamic that explains most of marital strife. A wise husband, a husband that wants to have a successful marriage, will seek to make his wife's duty easier. What's his wife's duty? To respect him, right? He'll seek to make his wife's duty easier by being respectable. Men, are you worthy of submission? Are you worthy of respect? Are you a lazy bum? Or are you a, a little boy who's immature and needs to grow up? Respect is earned. Now that doesn't mean that that excuses the wife and her behavior. Hey, if your husband's a lazy bum who's a little boy that needs to grow up, you still need to submit to him. But I'm talking to the men. Listen. Make yourself worthy of respect and maybe you'll get some. A wise wife will seek to make her husband's duty. What's that? To love her. By making herself lovely. Not being a nag. Not putting him down. Maybe looking attractive to him. Putting effort into that. Putting effort into the things that are important to him. Not the things that are important to somebody else, but the things that are important to Him. Make yourself lovable and lovely. Put yourself in a position where your husband can love you. Husband's basic need is affirmation. A wife's basic need is affection. Affirmation is what a man needs, ladies. Tell him that he's smart. Tell him that he can do it. Tell him that you believe in him. Tell him that you're behind him. If you tell him just the opposite of all those things, he'll live up to that. If you tell him he's a loser, that's what he'll be. And you know what? Maybe he is a loser. Maybe you need to help him. 
Maybe you need to believe in him. Maybe nobody else has ever believed in him, and you need to. The wife needs affection, not sex. She needs affection. Now, affection might lead to sex later, and that's the bonus. But men, your wife is not feeling affection just when you want to get busy. That's not affection for her. She wants to be held. And again, I'm not saying this because I do it very well. Okay, I just know it conceptually here. She wants to be held. She wants to be touched. She wants to be cuddled with. She wants to be listened to. What are you thinking about? How often have you heard that question? What are you thinking about? I don't know. Nothing. No, what, what are you thinking about right now? I don't know, I'm reading this book and I'm kind of thinking about that. Well, you, you can think and read at the same time, right? What are, you, what are you thinking about? Oh, baby, I'm just thinking about, you know, the first time I met you. Whatever. And then she's like, yeah, I know that isn't true, you know. But that's, they want to they wanna get inside your head. They want to hear your heart. They want you to hear them. They want you to listen, to converse. You gotta take time to do that, and it's hard, it's difficult. Because we're not wired that way. We're wired to go and conquer and achieve and win the battle. Well, guess what? You've got a battle right there. It's this woman that God gave you. The Bible says, dwell with her in understanding. That's something to win right there. That's your battle, men. That's the thing that God's given you to conquer, and it's not easy. So look at it as a challenge as something to aspire to, as something to be victorious with. I'll close with this. A successful marriage is meant to be an expression of our relationship with God, not a replacement for it. A successful marriage. It's meant to be an expression of what Jesus is doing in you, not a replacement for it. Ladies, your husband will never be Jesus to you. You need Jesus. Men, your wives will never replace what God wants to do in your life. They'll never fulfill you and respect you and honor you and love you the way that God does. It's not meant to be a replacement. It's just meant to be an expression of it. And you guys, if we will begin to put these things into practice, these simple things, there's heaven on earth awaiting us. That's what God wanted. That's what He meant. If you're having difficulties and problems in your marriage, you need to go no further than the words that we just studied together. Let's stand and pray. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you'd like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378. Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.